1 John chapter 2, and I want to read just two verses, verses 12 and 13. I don't have the number of the church Bible, but 1 John, so the you got the page number there, Glenn? 1194 in the Church Bible. 1 John chapter 2, and to read from verse 12. Thank you, 1193. Or 1028. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. What is a true Christian? How would you define a Christian? Let me me put it another way, because the term Christian is used in varying ways. How would you, what's your understanding of a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or I could turn the question around and ask you specifically, when it comes to being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you the real deal? Can you sit here with confidence today knowing, yes, I am a believer? There are many things that sort of unite us uh, as people. As, uh, and that is, yeah, we all eat, we all have family, we all uh, engage in relationships. Uh, there are always, uh, uh, all of us, no doubt, at some particular point in time have uh, uh, sickness and ill health, uh, whether it be from a bellyache through to an earache, uh, whatever it is, there are things that unite us as individuals. Yet amid those uh, many things that sort of uh, hold us together as people, there are also some things that make us distinctive. And uh, one of the distinctives are there are those who are, genuine, who are genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are genuinely uh, children of the living God, and those who are not. And it's not a distinction that I have made. It's not something that I've created here and, hang on, this is something new. It's a distinction that the scriptures clearly teach. And today, uh, I thought in light of the profession of faith that Nathan has made, that it's good for us all to stop and to think, well, hang on, here is Nathan who has professed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who... Uh, is clearly wanting to identify himself with the Lord's people and to be a part of his church, to join the church visible, then do I have the same confidence? Do I have that same assurance that he has? And so there are three things uh, in these verses that I want us just to stop and to pause uh, and to, to think about and to reflect on that we may know for sure that we are identified as the people of God. Now, there are the three uh, groups that are mentioned here, dear children, fathers and young men. I'll make a very brief comment upon that in a moment. I don't want us to get hung up at this particular point on the descriptors, but rather on uh, what follows where it says, firstly, uh, 
someone who has had their sins forgiven. Uh, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone whose sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Then in verse 13, what is a Christian? Someone who has known him from the beginning. And then thirdly, uh, or the emphasis there being of what I want to focus on is of knowing him. And then thirdly, I write to you young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So a Christian is someone who has overcome, who has victory over evil, who knows what it is to be a conqueror. And so these three are all true if you are a Christian, that you are someone who has had your sins forgiven, you are someone who is knowledgeable, you know the eternal God, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, why do I pause this morning and say, look, it's necessary for us to, to get these three things very clearly locked away in your minds? I do that because, uh, very sadly, you will go into churches who will uh, teach you, no, that there are, there are other things that are far more important that you need to be focusing upon and looking upon and seeking to do or achieve if you are going to be genuinely with the Lord, and they might well be. Uh, in terms of a works doctrine, don't worry about the forgiveness of sins. If you do so many works, if you door knock so many houses, if you give so much money, uh, if you go on a, uh, like the Mormons, you know, you dedicate yourself for 12 months, two years, and go out as an evangelist to another country, then that's going to sort of set you up very nicely. Or we could even think of uh, certain uh, churches which, which will say, well, Okay, yeah, forgiveness of sins, that's only a part of it. But what you really need is another experience. You need uh, that experience of uh, the ecstatic utterance and to, to genuinely show that you are, inverted commas, spirit-filled. But that's not the teaching of the scriptures. That's not the teaching of John very clearly here. For he brings us back to... Some very key fundamentals that uh, it's where he brings his emphasis if we were to spend some time going through um, uh, 1 John. His emphasis is on these points as the key indicators or the key markers of being a genuine child of, of the living God. And so uh, these three things, forgiven, Sins forgiven, knowing God, having a friendship with God that will endure for all time, and thirdly, set, set free from the snares and the power of the evil one. And so let me try and uh, bring this down to one sentence, a sentence that you can sort of take away with you and you can be thinking about uh, for the rest of the day and for the week that unfolds. As a true Christian... As a genuine believer, you are someone who is forgiven, who is knowledgeable, and who is victorious. Forgiven, knowledgeable, victorious. Let's, uh, we'll try and flesh that out, but I said I would just make a very brief comment about the titles that are given to your children, fathers, and young men. Uh, many theories about what John is trying to do here. But essentially what John is doing is uh, using uh, what we might call a, a teaching device by 
uh, using three different titles or three different names to bring emphasis, to stop sort of and get people to think about uh, the specific teaching that he's given. Uh, It's not only dear children who have been forgiven. It's not only fathers who know God and it's not only young men who have overcome. Uh, How can I be so sure and confident about that? Well, because the three descriptors of being forgiven, of being knowledgeable and of being victorious are mentioned elsewhere of the whole church. We go back to chapter 1, verse 9. If... We confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. He's speaking to the church. As the church, we are all, uh, we are those who have had our sin forgiven. Uh, We could move across to chapter 2 and verse 20. But you, that's the plural, have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. We are all knowledgeable of the truth. And then if we go across to chapter 5, And to read from verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. There's the victory that comes to every believer. I don't want to labour those. So uh, if you want to discuss it anymore, then see Dean or Steve or someone afterwards and they'll put you straight. Let's get back and to try and flesh out that whole idea of what is a true Christian. A true Christian is someone who is forgiven, who is knowledgeable and who is victorious. Firstly, forgiven. Verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. Now, if we're going to look at forgiveness and if we're going to understand forgiveness, then uh, bear with me because we do need to go back into 1 John and to look at verse 9. And there we read, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we think of forgiveness, and if we're going to genuinely understand forgiveness, we need to recognise that firstly an offence has occurred. And here it's not just an offence or something that you've done wrong to your neighbour or to your family member. Uh, it's uh, It's a wrong that you have committed against God. And in the scriptures, uh, the wrong that you have committed against God is called sin. Uh, God isn't about forgiving an innocent person. Uh, He is is there to forgive those who are guilty, who have done wrong. So then, how do we understand sin? The sin that God forgives. Well, move across, and if you have your Bibles, I, I... No, I don't apologise for making you do a bit of work this morning, even though it's warm and muggy. Um, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, here's the definition, sin is lawlessness. So we might describe sin then as rebellion, rebellion against God. We live as though God does not exist. We're doing our own thing. We're living our own life. We are dictating to God. Uh, what is right and what is wrong. And uh, when things go wrong and things don't go our way, uh, we blame God and we wag the finger at him. That's lawlessness and that's rebellion. And for those who are Christians here today, we know that uh, 
that uh, this is probably so, so real to us, that we know what sin is, uh, but we also know what it is to be forgiven. We know that as we have confessed, we're not made perfect, but we are forgiven. As we confess, we know that we have returned to God and we have had that desire to constantly do what he wants us to do. Now, there might be those who are sitting here this morning saying, well, that's all right for you Christians. Uh, that's, uh, you think that you've sinned, you think that you've done wrong, but that's not true of me. Well, again, we only need to take that one step back from chapter 1, verse 9 to verse 8, where we read, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. No one likes to be called a sinner. And if I was to stand here and sort of wag the finger and say, you know, like uh, sort of that imagery of sort of 16th, 17th century preachers, you know, you're all sinners, you know, there would be those who would be up in arms. Say, yeah, that's offensive. How dare you stand there and call us all sinners? But the fact is that we are all fallen together. You and I, we are sinners. And you may fool yourself this morning in thinking that you're not. But you won't fool God. For he knows your heart. He knows your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows that you have transgressed his holy law. And so when this dawns upon you, when the lights come on, that yes, I have lived my life as an offence before the holy God, then what is needed for you is confession. The need to acknowledge this before God and to repent. Now there are different forms of uh, uh, remorse. I've got to, I'll try and intentionally not to use the word repentance. Uh, there are those who are sorry for what they've done but are, are genuinely not repentant before God. And the example, and forgive me if this is an example you've heard me uh, give before, but I'll say it again because I think it's uh, one of the clearest ones to sort of set the whole thing uh, you know, clearly before you. And that is the example of Peter and the example of Judas. Here is Jesus about to go to the cross. Uh, and uh, why is he in that situation? Because Judas has betrayed him. A disciple, one who sat with him at the table and has supped with him. Judas betrayed him for silver coins. And he was remorseful for what he had done after the fact. But was he repentant? No. He was sorry. And he was filled with despair and went and hung himself. But there's Peter. There is Peter who also denies Christ. Now, you were with him. Yes, it's in that diminutive, that small little girl. You know, the Greek brings out the emphasis for us. You know, you know, this small girl says, you know, you're with them. You were with him. You know, this little girl. But Peter says, no, 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 not me. And that three times he denied. But what was the difference with Peter? He was filled with grief and he was genuinely repentant. And Christ knew that. And so after his resurrection... He sends a specific request 
to go and to tell Peter that he's alive and to come and to meet with him. There's the difference. Yes, you, there is that need for genuine repentance, recognising I have done wrong before the sovereign God. There is no sin that is too big, no sin that is too heinous, no sin that is outside the scope or the range of forgiveness of the sovereign God. We cannot shock God by how bad uh, your life has been. But what is required is that you seek him with all your heart and that you do it today and that you are in that restored relationship with the sovereign God. Well, there is the first indicator. A a Christian is someone whose sin is forgiven. But secondly, a, a believer, a Christian, is someone who is knowledgeable because you have known him. Now, that's a great privilege that is ours, that we can know the sovereign God. Uh, Animals, as much as we love them, cannot know God. Yes, they're created by him and they're fed by him and cared for them. But for animals and the animal world, death is death. But man is made for God. You and I have been made in the image of the eternal God, to be in relationship with the eternal God. And uh, it's one of the great errors, isn't it, of uh, some of these uh, or the, uh, sort of academic atheists, the Peter Singers of Monash University, who want to elevate the animal world and the animal kingdom to be on a level playing field with us, with mankind. There is a greatness and there is a dignity that you have and that you can have with God. And if you doubt that, then go back and reread Genesis 1 and 2 and spend time thinking about that. But let me uh, fill out for you the whole idea of what it means to be knowledgeable as a believer. There are two types of knowledge here. There is the factual knowledge and there is what we might call a relational knowledge or a personal knowledge. Now, there's factual knowledge. Uh, Just take, for example, uh, uh, someone who is sick. Uh, they've had an abdominal pain for months on end. I don't know anyone who fits that bill, so we'll go with that. And uh, there is a sort of doctors that have looked and tried to treat and try and find out what is going on, and we end up getting a, a medical history this thick about this particular person. Now, they, they all say, well, look, what we need to do is, is refer this person on to some specialist. And so the specialist picks up this medical history and reads through about all the information about this particular person. They have a certain factual file about this particular person. That's sort of like an intellectual or or a a knowledge base that is just based clearly on facts. But that whole relationship between that person and the doctor that they're going to visit will change once that person enters into the room because then they can... Uh, they, they relate to each other at a different level. They communicate. There's verbal interchange. Uh, they can, uh, there's a trust. There's, uh, there's an interrelationship that develops at a personal level. So we've moved from facts to just a personal, to, 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 a, to another level of a personal relationship. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, we need both. We need to have the facts about who God is. 
We need to know that he is unchangeable, that he is sovereign, that he is the all-powerful, that he is the great I am, that he is the God of history. We need to have a right understanding of facts about who God is. But that's not the only level of the knowledge we have about him. We also need to have that personal relationship where we communicate with him, where we trust in him, where we uh, live out practically and experientially his sovereign care and provision and enabling within our lives. Is that true of you today? Are you someone who is knowledgeable, both in terms of what the scriptures teach us about the sovereign God and teach uh, you about yourself? And are you in a knowledgeable about God in terms of your relationship with him through prayer, through trust, through uh, uh, seeking forgiveness, of casting your burdens upon him, of loving him, of worshipping him, of obeying him, of being a friend to him. A genuine believer is someone who is forgiven. A genuine believer is someone who is knowledgeable. But finally, we have the third descriptor, and that is someone who has overcome, someone who is victorious. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, this is uh, one of those things. The Bible is uh, insistent upon the doctrine of Satan. And in many ways, it's a lost doctrine. There are pl- plenty of people who want to write off and say Man, the, the whole idea of Satan and the devil, uh, you know, that's sort of for sort of horror movies and for books of, of a bygone era. Really, that's just sort of all scare tactics. That's sort of a, like a, the, the psychology of the scriptures to try and uh, intimidate us in a certain way. Well, that's wrong thinking. The scriptures are very clear about the doctrine of the evil one. And I think that uh, in many ways it's probably a ploy of the evil one that if we do not believe in him, then we will not take him seriously. The whole world is lying in slumber before him in many ways. Uh, The whole world is under his hypnotic control. And whole nations have been fallen subject to the lie of the devil. Is that not Marxism for those who have had the... Uh, I won't say the pleasure, what's the opposite of pleasure? Displeasure, well, whatever that word is, of uh, studying uh, philosophy, among other things, and Marxism. You know, Marxism just sort of said religion is the theopiate of the people, not something that uh, we really need. Well, just as whole nations have fallen to the lie of the devil, so individuals do as well. And individuals have been deceived into thinking he doesn't exist. But the reality is that he does. And John tells you as a believer today very clearly that you have overcome. That you have overcome the evil one. Now, Doug read to us from Revelation chapter 12. A beautiful picture that uh, is really what we might call enacted teaching for uh, the reality of the evil one and who is victorious. A great and wondrous sign, Revelation 12, appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, 
with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant. She cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour the child the moment it was born. Now the illusion here of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, here is the dragon through Herod wanting to uh, cut the Lord Jesus Christ off. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels were hurled with him. Here is the victory. The victory that was begun with even, even at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the devil knows that he's beaten. He knows that his time is short. He knows of the events of the cross. And he will try to do all within his power to destroy Christ and to his church. And uh, Doug went down and focused upon verse 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Who were the rest of her offspring? It's the church. Those, there's the explanation given there. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan is the great deceiver. And that's why there is worldliness in the church. That's why there's heresy in the church. That's why there's compromise in the church. That's why there's nominalism in the church. But the picture that Revelation brings out for us over and over again is that there is victory because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, share in that victory. God's weakness and what, and God's, what appears to be weakness, where the, uh, the, the suffering servant hangs upon a cross, is greater than all the power of men. For he was accomplishing a sovereign plan. He was redeeming a people for himself. He was saving a nation. He was beginning uh, that process of calling a people to himself that would overcome the evil one. And the dragon is defeated. The dragon is his defeated. Is, is defeated. And you and I need to remember this as we face the secular age, as we face heresy, as we face nominalism, as we face compromise, that Jesus Christ pictorially has the devil by the tail. He is the sovereign. He is the all-powerful. He knows. He is conquered. He's resurrected to life, our saviour, redeemer. He's ascended into heaven. 
He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He even now is calling his people to himself, as we have seen and witnessed today in the testimony of Nathan. The church continues to be built. Are you a true believer? Are you someone who names the name of Jesus and who knows with confidence that your sin is forgiven, that you know a deep friendship, both factual and personal, factual and relational, with the sovereign God, and know that you are an overcomer, that you're on the winning side, that you're on the side of Jesus Christ, who has the devil by the tail. Amen.